Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Hey friends, good morning and welcome to the Awaken Podcast. We're going to begin today with a prayer read by my good friend Jenna Daniels. Uh, This last week, she offered it, I think maybe online somewhere, and I read it and I was like, oh, so good. Raise a glass. So good. And I said, Jenna, would you ever be willing to read that for the beginning of the podcast? And she said, yeah, I would. And I just think, I think think the title of it is At the End of a Long Week, which, right? Uh, Isn't that kind of how many of us feel? I'm assuming that's how I've felt a number of times along the way. So I hope that this prayer is a blessing to you. I hope that it uh, lifts you and holds you and does all the things that, uh, that you need this morning to hear from the voice of God. So, my friend Jenna. All I can say at the end of a long week is that I hope your will was done. I hope good came from bad, holy from evil, life from brokenness. I hope somewhere that someone felt the sunlight sink deep into their bones, that those same rays of sun bolted back out of them and blessed their every neighbor. I hope that when kingdom came this week, someone was paying attention, someone engaged with their humanity and your perfection. It's the end of a long week, and I hope that we're learning to rest better by now. I hope our deep breaths are deeper and our hunched shoulders are lowered and our voices are less strained. I hope we fill the spaces of the coming weekend with that kind of Sabbath rest that only kingdom can teach us. All I can say at the end of a long week is kingdom come. I hope that even where I feel empty, I am full. I hope that where I feel full, I will be emptied back out. And I hope all things will be leveled and brought to a good kind of justice. Because at the end of a long week, the world is both terribly frightening and breathtakingly beautiful. At the end of a long week, I hope that our daily bread was given, that our debts were shackled off of us, and that our hearts of stone were broken to meet the work of forgiveness. At the end of a long week, I hope that we stepped out of our realm and into yours and realized that they aren't so far apart after all. So at the end of a long week, I keep praying to the King of tenderness, God to unfold me, God to surround me, God in my speaking, God in my thinking, God in my sleeping, God in my waking, God in my watching, and God in my hoping, God in my life, God in my lips, God in my soul, God in my heart, God in my sufficing, God in my slumber, God in my ever-living soul, God in mine eternity. Amen.
friends, before we get to the teaching, which is going to be hot, I'm telling you, I have two announcements. Number one, wildflower coffee. When you all are in this building, you drink an insane amount of coffee, which is great for wildflower because they sell it to us. And while they sell us coffee, they also help employ homeless youth, which we love. Because you're not here, we're not buying a lot of coffee, which means that's a bummer for them for a lot of reasons. So here's what we want to do. We want to buy some coffee and we want to deliver it to you. Kind of like old school, like we'll bring it to your door. So what we need you to do, you're not going to get a whole pound of coffee. You're going to get enough coffee to have a, 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 a pot of coffee or a cup of coffee on Sunday morning when you listen to the podcast. So we need you to sign up. So on the website and in the Awaken Weekly, if you want coffee, if you drink coffee and you want it delivered, sign up for it and we'll bring it to you. And uh, we had a real debate as to whether it was going to be ground or not ground and we I don't know, actually, what's going to happen. It, so it may be ground, it may not be ground, but either way, we want to give you coffee for Sunday mornings. There's one other small piece to this. I'm going to post a picture of a, a book dragon. Now, you might be thinking, what is a book dragon? Well, on my music stand right now, we, and, and for the last however many weeks we've been doing this thing, there has been a dragon <laughs> with a sign that says, I'm not a bookworm, I'm a book dragon. And this dragon has been overseeing the whole COVID-19 podcast series, you guys. So here's what's going to happen. One lucky person or family is going to unknowingly receive a book dragon in their bag. And that means a lot of things. Number one, it means that like your God likes you a lot because you just got a dragon. And it also means that you now are responsible to bless somebody else in our community by doing something for them, bringing it to their house, dropping it off, and passing on the book dragon. It's going to be so much fun. People are going to be like, where's the book dragon? I don't know. Did you know? Have you seen it? Have you gotten it? It's going to be like this grand caper of intrigue at Awaken. Like, where's the book dragon? Of course, if you have the book dragon, please sanitize the book dragon. Use, you know, antibacterial things to de-COVID the book dragon before you pass it on. All the things we would expect. But how exciting is that? The book dragon is coming for you and some free coffee. Well, maybe the book dragon, but for sure free coffee if you sign up for it. Announcement number two. The annual meeting is tonight, 6 p.m., This link is in the Awaken Weekly. It is also on the website. It is a Zoom webinar. You have to have a password to participate. So you register for the 
annual meeting. It'll send you a password. You can participate 6 p.m. on Sunday night. Anyone can participate, partners or non-partners alike. Only partners can vote. But here's the thing, friends. In order for us to have an annual meeting by the bylaws and constitution of Awaken, we need 30% of our partners. We have a little over 220 partners, which means we need 70 partners to have a quorum. Currently, we only have 50 of you signed up. It's a global pandemic and you're under quarantine and there are no sports on. So I'm pretty sure nobody has a reasonable excuse to not be at this meeting. So if we could get 70 partners there, that would be awesome. If we don't, I don't know what I'm gonna do. That will be a very depressing day. So please register for the annual meeting and we will see you there, 6 p.m. Now, Acts chapter eight in the Ethiopian eunuch I'm entitling this message, No Nuts, No Problem. (laughs) I've been waiting all week to say that. Which I'm stealing from a brilliant article by a Norwegian theologian called, entitled, No Nuts, No Problem, Disability, Stigma, and the Baptized Eunuch in Acts chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26, please stand if you are able. Here we go. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandaki, which means the queen of the Ethiopians, actually the queen of the empire of Cush, which becomes Ethiopia, but that was too much to put in the side note. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship the eunuch. And on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet, which means he's rich. He bought a scroll. Nope, not a lot of people could do that. He's literate. Uh, And the spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near it. So Philip ran up to the chariot, heard the man reading Isaiah, the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? He asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with me. Hey, look, Harry, more hitchhikers. Pick him up. How can, oh, uh, how can I, unless someone's, yeah, come sit with me. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was like a sheep. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. How ironic that the eunuch was reading that passage. Be that as it may, the eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is it the prophet is talking about, himself or someone else? Like I can imagine the eunuch thinking, is he talking about me? Then Philip began with the very passage of scripture and told him about the good news of Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? Such a great question. He gave orders to stop the chariot. Then Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. Of course he did. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Man, the story's getting good. Pray with me. God, I pray that this morning as we think about this story and the implications of it for us, that you would uh, offer to us a fresh word, uh, a word of hope a word of encouragement, a word of challenge, maybe even a word of exhortation to be the people that you have called us to be, I pray. In the strong name of Christ and all God's people said together, amen. My book dragon just fell off my stand. This morning, I want to talk about two things. 
And then I want to circle back to something. Have you guys ever been to like the 4th of July when there were fireworks and then after the fireworks are over, there's still the lingering smell of gunpowder in the air? There's something in the air and I need to come back to it. Um, and, and truthfully, this is something I wish I had talked about last week, but the problem is when you record a podcast three to five days before you release it, you never know what's going to happen between those two events. And so I want to talk about the freeze, freezing of the text, the universalizing nature of Luke's gospel and Acts, and then I want to talk about Ahmad Arbery. Um, and Surgeon General's warning, gang, this one will require your thinking caps. So um, I'm assuming that many of you are at Awaken because you have thinking caps and you like to use them. So get them out and get your notes and your pens because you're going to need them. Let me start with this. Acts chapter 8, a black... Ethiopian eunuch in the court of Kandaki, the queen of Kush, as I mentioned. By the way, there were eight queens of this empire. It's not called a kingdom. Why, friends? Because they were queens, not kings. It was a queendom. Um, one of the only queens or people, women, who ever stood up to the Roman Empire and beat them in military battle, be that as it may, you have a black, differently abled sexual minority who becomes the first convert in the book of Acts by name. Let me say that again. A black, differently abled, sexual minority becomes the first convert in the story, the new story of Jesus in the book of Acts. Like, if the Bible is still alive and moving and breathing today, and God is, wants to use it to speak a new and fresh word to its hearer, then there might not be a more appropriate story and content for us in this moment right now. Like, this is the kind of story where you say that you can't make this kind of stuff up, because you can't. Of all the people Luke could have named, or of all the people God could have orchestrated to be the first convert in the new story of Jesus, this movement that's moving out beyond the walls of the temple and of Israel, like fulfilling the words of the prophet that this word would reach to the ends of the earth. Do you know what the ancients called Ethiopia? The end of the earth. You can't make it up. The religious, ethnic, sexual outsider is baptized into the family of God. Come on! So first freezing the text. We're going to come back to Philip and the eunuch here in just a minute, but let me make some scaffolding so we can hang a few things on it. What do I mean when I say freezing the text? In the simplest of terms, when you freeze the text, you say things like, if the Bible says it, I believe it, that's enough. Like you might call yourself a literalist. Um, if it's in the good book, I just apply it no matter what it is or whatever else I find in the Bible even. Um, let's keep the metaphor of freezing going, right? To freeze the text is to take what is meant to move, live, and breathe, the Bible, or something like a river, and to freeze it, to stop it, to make something that is dynamic, static, unmovable, stationary, frozen. So the words, and the the words of the biblical authors are frozen in time and space. They are the word of God for all time, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative. They are impervious to interpretation or any creative moves someone want, might want to make. People's agenda, or God forbid, the, human, the wicked human heart. Like, we only need to find the plain reading of the text and then apply it without question. Now, listen, I grew up in this kind of evangelical culture as it relates to the Bible. I know many of you did as well. And truthfully, there's a certain level of safety here because everything is quite clear or at least it appears to be clear to the white men who have interpreted the Bible's plain meaning for us and now enforce its application. So to freeze the text is to take it at face value. Whatever it says is what it means, and now you just apply it. Now, I, I want to try to give the benefit of the doubt here. I, it probably doesn't sound like I am, but I do want to. I don't want to judge the intentions of those who live in this paradigm. 
Like, I want to believe that their sincere commitment to God or their commitment to the authority of Scripture or uh, their, their commitment to the Bible and to holiness. Like, this is truly what's at the center of what drives their, their, their position or their way of reading the Bible. Now, I have my doubts here, but I want to be the kind of person that always hopes and holds out for the best. The problem, or maybe I should say the problems, with this way of relating to the Bible, there are many, but let's start with this one. What happens when the Bible contradicts itself? Now, you might be thinking, well, Micah, the Bible doesn't contradict itself, to which I would say to you, yes, it does. Start reading it. I'm sorry, that wasn't very nice. It does contradict itself. It does it all the time. Jesus, for example, says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Well, the you have heard it said is scripture, the Bible, Torah. And then Jesus says, but I say to you, which is now what we call scripture, the Bible. So you have two things which are often at odds with one another. And no surprise to anybody, this passage in Acts 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch highlights one of the more drastic and clear um, let's call it uh, dissonances in the Bible where you have two different things saying, two different passages saying two totally different things. Let me set it up. Deuteronomy 23. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, it, it's pretty clear. Um, nobody whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. Meaning, you can't enter the worship of the Lord. You can't enter the community of God's people who are in worship. You are outside of in, right? This is the Mosaic law, and eunuchs are not admitted. The bottom line, they are outside of in. And even many of them lack the one thing necessary to become a proselyte convert into Judaism, which is the ability to be circumcised, for which you need a penis and foreskin. No pun intended. So not only are they out, but they, even if they wanted to be in, they can't get in. Here's an interesting note, by the way. This brings into sharp focus the arbitrary, often arbitrary, culturally defined word normal. Um, this author that I mentioned earlier, she says, the socially constructed nature of genital defects comes into sharp relief when compared to the Hebrew custom of male circumcision. Circumcision is cast as socially and ritually enabling rather than disabling. So what has she just said? In the case of genital modification, in the one case, genital modification renders someone the abhorrent outsider, a eunuch. And in another, genital modification renders someone a full member of the community with all the benefits, circumcision. Like, what gives? Who decided that? Be that as it may, According to the Bible, eunuchs are out. But then you read Isaiah 56. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice. Do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds its fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people, and let no eunuch Complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath, who chooses to please me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple, within my house, and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters, which is what they called the Israelites. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. 
So what you have is the prophet Isaiah offering a vision of the future that is completely and utterly contradictory to what scripture has already set as the standard in Deuteronomy 23. Now, couple that with our story from Acts chapter 8, and you have evidence of God's spirit doing what the prophet said, welcoming the prohibited eunuch of Deuteronomy 23 into fellowship and into the family of God. Here's my point. If the text is frozen in time and equally authoritative, you have a problem. As my grandpa used to say, hello, Joe, got a problem. But if the text is a river that's flowing from the divine with intention and a trajectory, then you have a totally different ballgame because the questions are different. The goal then is not to determine the plain meaning of the text, you can feel my air quotes, can't you, and then apply it, but rather to determine the nature and the character of God, which we know in Jesus, and then determine what trajectory we are on based on the stories found in scripture, because guess what, friends? These stories are still being written right here and right now. So where is God moving in our midst right here and right now? My encouragement to you is this, as you read the Bible, and this story brings it into sharp focus. Know the text, study the text, be honest with the text, but don't stop with the text. Don't freeze it. Follow the through lines. Like the text points us to Jesus and the Spirit, both of which are alive, if you didn't get the memo from Easter. Both of whom are not static, not stationary, not silent for our observation and interpretation and application. So follow the trail of breadcrumbs, Hansel and Gretel. The Bible has left us a trail. We got to follow it. Follow the through lines and the trajectory that we see Jesus giving us. Don't freeze the text. If you freeze it, it's no longer alive. And the Han Solo trick doesn't work here. Which leads me to a second observation about this passage. The universalizing and surprising nature of Luke's gospel. This is the first of three stories that we're going to study in the next three weeks. It's a little mini-series, if you will, in the book of Acts. All of them have to do with boundaries and who is welcomed into the family of God and who is not. And often there are surprising people we find at the table and there is a universalizing nature and energy to Luke's good news story about Jesus. The book of Acts and these stories in particular seem to be making it very clear that the spirit of God is not confined by the racial, ethnic, sexual, political, gender, boundaries that we are so concerned with and that the ancients were so concerned with. I mean, the Ethiopian eunuch and the conversion of Cornelius, the uncircumcised Roman in chapter 10, which we'll study next week, these exhibit Luke's theology and understanding of the gospel in a nutshell, no pun intended. Who exactly can be included into the people of God through baptism? Eunuchs? Yeah. Uncircumcised Gentiles? Sure. Nuts or no nuts? No problem. The outsider is included. And here's the real irony. According to where Paul takes this in the book of the Romans, the only one who's in danger of being left behind and standing outside of the party by their own choice is the circumcised Jew. <laughs> Can't make it up. So Luke's gospel story about Jesus and the implications of Jesus are very surprising and they have universalizing energy. Here's what I want to say to you about that. Good news, friends. You're free from the burden of having to determine who's in and who's out. Like, who gets to sit at the table? Who do we get to serve communion to? Uh, who gets to be welcomed into the community and the fellowship of the church? Who gets to use their gifts for the service of God in the world? It seems that the book of Acts wants to say, anyone who's in Christ, which is why I love pietism and why I love the covenant church. 
To my knowledge, friends, there's no invitation from God in Scripture to us as humans to be the arbiters and judges determining who gets to sit at the table, who gets into the fellowship. Like, I've looked and I've looked and I can't find any place where God says, man, I could really use some help here. Like, would you stand as the, as the gatekeepers of morality, pointing out the sins and shortcomings of everybody around you, and then go ahead and use that scale to determine who gets to participate in the community? Good news, friends. You're free. You're free from that weight and that burden. You don't have to carry it. It was never your job or my job. And to my knowledge, especially as I read the book of Acts and the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, this is the job of the spirit. So be free, little bird. Your job, my job, is to point people to Jesus. That's it. It seems really simple. I mean, this is a pretty complicated hermeneutical argument I'm making. I recognize that. But it's pretty simple. Your job is to witness and testify to the life-changing, and life-changing experience of being connected to God by virtue of your surrendering to the movement of the Christ and the Christ's work on your behalf in and through the person of Jesus. Like, can you bear witness to this reality in your life? Can you point people to the love of God made known in the person of Jesus? Who gets in, who's out, who sits at the table, what that looks like, you can totally let that go. You're free from that burden. And the book of Acts offers a very simple way forward. Are you in Christ? (sighs) Don't freeze the text. The surprising nature of Luke's gospel. I love it. Now, let me move to a few words about Ahmad Arbery. Uh, If you are unaware, in the state of Georgia in late February, an unarmed black man named Ahmad Arbery was gunned down in broad daylight by two white men who said he fit the description of a burglar in their neighborhood. Actually, I don't even know if it was their neighborhood. Uh, These men armed themselves with weapons and followed this young man who was out on a run for a jog. They confronted him and then shot him three times at close range where he died in the street after an altercation. All of this was captured on video by another man who may or may not be involved. Uh, We're not sure. Uh, Charges for the murder of Ahmad were originally dismissed by the DA, by multiple DAs, who after seeing the video determined that the two men acted in self-defense. And in this case was effectively buried for over two months until the video was made public last week, uh, at which point a public outcry for justice was um, loud and clear. The two DAs involved recused themselves because of their previous relationships with the father and the son who were um, involved in the, the shooting, and the case was reopened by a third DA, and now the two men are in custody and will stand trial for the murder of Ahmad Arbery. Uh, So much to say about that, but for now, uh, I've said enough to be able to say a couple of things that I want to say. Last week, we studied the execution of Stephen, who was the first martyr of the Christian church by an angry mob. I talked about power and the way power works, and what happens when the prophet speaks truth to power. And I feel compelled to ask for a few extra moments of your time this morning to offer a few thoughts on this. The first of which is, uh, as your pastor, I want you to know about the galvanizing and clarifying vision that I feel invited into. Uh, It's a vision to press further into and to continue to disciple, shape, challenge, and teach a mostly white church to learn about whiteness and how it functions in us and its impact in the world. Now, over the course of my career as a pastor, I have felt 
a number of specific nuanced invitations from God as I have done my work. Uh, as a youth pastor, it was connected to kids who come from single-parent homes. As a young adult pastor, it was connected to a desire for people to see Jesus for who he really was, not, uh, not the veneers or the misrepresentations uh, of who Jesus is. As a young church planter, it was connected to creating space for people to wrestle with their faith and to deconstruct and reconstruct. Most recently, it's been connected to becoming a spiritual father to many of you and your children. And I want to say that what God is doing in me right now is an increased commitment or an increasing commitment to engage white Christians to think deeply about whiteness about how it functions in the world and how it hinders and stands in opposition to the good news about Jesus. For me, if you are white and you are a follower of Jesus, this must be a part of our discipleship. This is not negotiable. To learn about the power of whiteness and the creation of race as a construct and the ways that it has dehumanized and oppressed people and bodies of color in the world to then lament the ways this power has been used to ravage and steal both land and life, to repent from these systems and these ideas, and then to engage as a part of our faith being lived out, anti-racist policy and practice as part of our commitment to Jesus. This invitation that I'm offering, that I feel compelled to offer you as the church, this is beyond Republican and Democrat. Uh, This is for all of us. Who, who claim to follow this Jesus. For me, the death of Ahmad, Tamir, Philando, Michael, Trayvon, countless others is a wake-up call. To you and I who are white and who are Christian, to consider at least two things in play. Number one, the power and system of white body supremacy. Now, you may be, maybe you've never heard this term before. You've probably heard white supremacy, but this white body supremacy, I would encourage you to pick up a book called My Grandmother's Hands. Uh, for many of us, when we hear the words white supremacy or white supremacists, we, we shirk back. We get a little nervous, right? And, and we immediately distance ourselves from those ideas because we think, I'm not a white supremacist. Because in my mind, a white supremacist lives in the South, they wear white hoods, they lynch black people, they're a part of the KKK, right? To which I would say, I agree, there's a very good chance you're not a white supremacist if that's what you mean by it. But there is a deeper question I want you to ask and consider. And that is, is there a system and a history at play in our country of determining the value of one's life based on the color of their skin? Like, is that a part of our story? To which we all have to say yes. Another way to say that is the white body has been and has had supreme value in our country. It has been established as the norm and the purest form of the human body. And then all other bodies are measured against that. That is called white body supremacy. And there is no way to read the short story of American history, which includes the doctrine of discovery, manifest destiny and chattel slavery and say that it was not founded upon the assumptions of white body supremacy. You just can't do it. Both somatic science and epigenetic science is telling us that the body keeps a score of trauma. 
that trauma can and does change the very DNA and cellular structure of the human body. And so what I want to say to you this morning is that I am convinced that the trauma of the evil idea of white body supremacy is alive and well in me and in you and those who have suffered the damaging effects of it. It informs how we relate to each other. It informs the assumptions that we have when we see a story like Ahmaud Arbery. It is present in our world and it is present in my world and it is present in your world. And while you may not be a white supremacist, you have been shaped and formed in a world that assumed white body supremacy and continue to be shaped and formed by powers and systems that were formed and informed by white body supremacy. To be ignorant of this fact is to be complicit in its aim. The second thing that's at play and is critical that we see is the power and system of the construct we created called race. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Race is a construct, meaning it was built, it was constructed. It is the narrative that people in power created around certain kinds of bodies. A narrative that served a particular set of bodies, those in power, and then was used to legitimate the certain treatments of other kinds of bodies. So race is a construct that we built, and by we, I mean white European Christians 400 and 500 years ago. So racism then is the behavior informed by this classification of humans based on the color of their skin. These behaviors and assumptions become or became the systemic and institutional backbone of our developing story and project called America. So racism, or, or, or I should then say, racism combined with religion informs the whole project called colonization around the world, which hasn't gone very well. Again, I would say, to be naive and ignorant of this fact is to be complicit in its aim. As your pastor, I love you too much. I cannot run the risk of you being naive and ignorant to race and white body supremacy and how they function in our world. So an event like this is a wake-up call, a reminder, a, 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 a stoking of the fire of justice and what it looks like to deconstruct and demolish the lie of white body supremacy and the system or the construct of race which informs the systems that we participate in daily. And let me see if I can wrap this up and bring it back to where we started with the eunuch. Now you might be thinking these have nothing to do with each other. I would say they have everything to do with each other. Racism, sexism, ableism, nearly any other ism that we can think of are built on two ideas, the norm and the deviant. The norm, or that which is determined normal, and the deviant, any deviation from the norm which is then stigmatized by those who hold power. To be stigmatized uh, is to be given an attribute that is deeply discrediting. So here's how this works. 
if white is deemed the norm by those in power, the deviant is the indigenous and black body, which is then stigmatized, given an, an attribute that's deeply discrediting. This is called racism. If male is deemed the norm by those in power, the deviation from the norm is female, which is then stigmatized. This is called sexism. If heterosexual is deemed the norm by those in power, queer is the deviation, which is then stigmatized. This is called heterosexism. Here's the connection. In the ancient world, and in particular the Hebrew world, male, circumcised, and virile, or potent, uh, uh, fertile, is the norm by those in power. So the deviation is the eunuch who is genderless, impotent, and unable to be circumcised in many cases, which is then stigmatized. The eunuch in the ancient world is despised and outcast. They are outside of in on every level. According to the ancient Roman writer Lucian, a eunuch was neither man nor woman, but something composite, a hybrid, and monstrous, an alien to human nature. The eunuch of the ancient world experiences the terrible and awful tendency of humans, which is the creation of a norm from which everything else is judged and valued, and then the stigmatization of any deviation from the norm. Racism, sexism, ableism, gender binaryism, ageism, it's all the same story. White, male, hetero, cis are the norm from which everything else is measured. It is an old story, and aren't you just tired of it? Friends, the trajectory that Luke is on and the universalizing story of the gospel of Jesus is that the spirit of God loose in the world stands opposed and at odds with any and every attempt we make to deem a particular body, skin color, age, ability, gender, orientation, the norm from which everything else is judged and valued. And it stands at odds with all of the ways that we then dehumanize one another and devalue one another, so much so that the first convert in the new story of Jesus in the book of Acts is the black, gender-ambiguous, foreign-born eunuch from the ends of the earth which is exactly how far this message of Jesus intends to go. That is the train I'm interested getting on. And my job and your job then is to testify, to invite people to meet this person we call Jesus. Come to Jesus, he will never cast you out, come you thirsty, put aside your fear, your doubt, with great gentleness, with great gentleness, he draws you, how he draws you. See how he draws you to
As we move towards communion, I want to invite you into a time of silence to consider the the things that you've heard this morning. And as I always say, I don't expect you to agree with me. I don't expect you to listen to what I say and not offer a challenge or another way of thinking about it. I, I, I expect you to do that. So in the next few moments of silence, would you be willing to ask the spirit of the living God, what is true? What is, what, what needs to remain and what seeds need to be planted in deep in my soul and in my heart? so that they might take root and grow in me, so that I might look more and more and more like this Jesus that I claim to follow. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Whenever you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and blessed it and said, this is my blood shed for you. Whenever you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been for a long time or ever before, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come, not because the church invites you, but because Christ invites you to be known and to be fed here. I'd like to invite you to take the bread and receive these words, the body of Christ broken for you. And in the same way, take from the cup and receive these words, the blood of Christ shed for you. Well, friends, receive these words as you go. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace. Amen. www.facebook.com backslash awakening community. Or on Twitter, awakening community.
Sainz.